1: We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code Charlotte Reader, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. And you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue, let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with New York Times bestselling writer Steve Berry, author of The Kaiser's Web, a Cotton Malone adventure in which a secret dossier from World War II era Soviet spy threatens to rewrite history and forever alter the political landscape of Europe. With the national election looming, these secrets of the past will determine who becomes the next chancellor, a dedicated patriot? Or a usurper, stoking the flames of nationalistic hate. Cotton Malone must discover the truth about the past to guarantee the future. John Land describes the Kaiser's Web as Steve Barry's most ambitious yet, taking no prisoners in a non-stop roller coaster ride of thrills and spills, twists and turns, and shocks and surprises, with nothing less than the very future at stake. The book releases today, February 23rd, 2021, and I'm excited to be talking with Steve Berry about it. Steve, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you, sir. Yeah, so um, congratulations on the latest Cotton Malone thriller.
0: Well, it's this is a little milestone for me. This is book number 20
1: for me. So,
0: <laughs> so this is my 20th, um, 20th printed novel, 16 Cotton Malones.
1: That's amazing. Did you ever think you'd get to 20 printed novels?
0: Never in a million years. Yeah. You know, it was not not was. I just wanted to do one, and then I just wanted to do the second one, and then the third one. I never, I never really thought I'd I'd still be here. You know, twenty books later.
1: Well, I, I think I mentioned to you before we started. Uh, I, I was a trial lawyer for thirty five years. You were a trial lawyer for some thirty thirty five years. I'm now a recovering trial lawyer. Uh, I got to ask the lawyer related question though. Uh, I'd like to know you talk about being a trial lawyer a little bit and how that's helped you. In your writing and uh, maybe uh, what you had to unteach yourself as a lawyer to be a thriller writer.
0: To be honest with you, being a lawyer didn't really help me at all being a writer. <laughs> uh, uh, the only thing it did was give me the incentive to do it because uh, I was a trial lawyer, as you were. I was mainly a divorce lawyer. I did thousands of divorces. I did criminal cases. I did I did anything and everything in a courtroom. I was basically the hired gun in the courtroom. And so um uh, I started writing thrillers to get away from all of that, you know, mm-hmm. to escape it, to uh, to 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 not think about that stuff at all, and so that's about the only thing it gave me. Um, writing as a lawyer is is a is a is a fine thing because your object of writing as a lawyer is to persuade, so you do that by saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. The object of fiction is to entertain and to say it once. So it's a big difference. It took me about six or seven years to get the lawyer out of my writing. It really, really did. I had to consciously work at it. Because in lawyer writing, we write very passively and passive voice a lot. And in fiction, that is the kiss of death. So you, yeah. had to, you have to get all of that out of your system. But I eventually did get it out of there.
1: I know what you're exactly talking about. The word of sometimes appears too much in uh in the lawyer lingo and you have to turn that around and make an active voice. And I've had to learn that as well, uh, writing. Um, well, I thought, you know, when I was thinking about writing books late much later in my career than you started, it was really to kind of i wanted to enjoy writing about conflict more than experience it on a daily basis did you have fun doing that as well yeah yeah
0: well, there's an escapism element to it that uh, i control the conflict in the in the fiction you know i can actually stop it start it uh, unfortunately in real life i had no control over it whatsoever it just sort of, it just sort yeah. of gestated out of control however it wanted to go um you know every thursday was divorce day and i did i did 6 to i don't know i do 6 to 15 sometimes as many as 20 cases every thursday and and it was it's like literally like holding 20 balloons underwater simultaneously
1: you yeah. know I,
0: they're all popping up everywhere you're trying to keep them all down and uh yeah. but in fiction it's great because i can cut it on and off and i can tell the people what i want to do and uh, I, I did enjoy that part of it. Yeah.
1: That's great. Well, and a few things about you, uh, well, a few things that you and I have in common, a few things you and I don't have in common. Uh, the thing you and I don't have in common is you're the best, uh, you're the author of uh, best-selling books that have been translated into 40 languages with 20 million copies and 51 countries. I haven't quite done that yet. I'm just curious here. Uh, you said you didn't think you'd get to 20 novels. Um when did, the, when did it flip for you? At what point in time did you actually start building that traction to get 20 million copies of your it's actually, book?
0: It's actually now up to 25 million.
1: Oh, go, okay, well, shoot, the clock's ticking then.
0: Probably. Yeah, yeah, it's actually moved up. Uh, they did, a, they did a, a thing on me a while back and did a calculation, which was kind of interesting. And my first book was published in September 2003. And now here we are in January of 21, so that's 18 years later. Um, for the last 18 years, every 30 seconds of every day, someone bought one of my books somewhere in the world, which is pretty cool when you think about it, you know. Uh, yeah. Somebody did that calculation and actually came up with that in, in that calculation. So every 30 seconds. Now, if you had asked me 18 years ago, was that going to happen? I'd say, no, there's no way in the world. That's 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 not even possible. I wrote... I don't know if you know my story or your listeners do. Uh, I wrote my, I did write my first word. I was 35 years old. That was in 1990. Uh, From 1990 to 2002, 12 years, I wrote eight novels. Five of them went to New York publishing houses and they were rejected a total of 85 times. You know, it was only 86th time that I made it 12 years after I started. So my road to publishing was a very long process. And then since then, I've been able to do 20 printed novels. Now, the first book I was very fortunate was The Amber Room, and it did really well. Uh, the, The Romanov Prophecy was next. It did even better. The Third Secret came next. It did a little better. And then I got the idea for Cotton Malone. And I wrote The Templar Legacy in 2006. And that's the moment, that I broke out. That's where things changed.
1: Well, that's great. You were an overnight success. It just took you eight to 12 years to do it. Right? It took 12 years <laughs> to do
0: it, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and and The Temple Legacy remains to this day my biggest selling book, still to this day.
1: Yeah. Well, I love The Kaiser's Well, We're going to be talking about that today. Uh, and listeners, I want to tell you that uh, when we're done with this 30-minute episode, uh, Steve and I are going to jump over to our Patreon page. We're going to do a 30-minute episode on uh, how someone can sell 20 million copies of their book. So we're going to talk a little bit deeper dive about uh his writing and his craft and that kind of thing. So uh we'll talk more about that later in the show. But uh Steve, the other thing that you did before you became an author, or maybe you were doing it while you were an author was hold elective office. And uh, you know, I wonder, you know, we're sort of in the wake of uh, you know, the storming of our capital here when we're rec- recording this. And uh w- we're dealing with the book that you've written here, The Kaiser's Web. That's coming out uh, today. That has, uh, you know, themes of nationalism in it. Um, when you were in elective office, um, was it as divisive as it is now? And uh, what we'll kind of use that as a springboard to work into this idea of nationalism?
0: It was not. It was not. I was a count, I was on. I served on the school board, and then I was a county commissioner for ten years, and we had our disagreements, and we had our, our, you know, our polarizations on certain things, but nothing like today. Um, you know, you know, to me, politics is not a dirty word. Politics means compromise. You have to get along. You have to compromise. No one in elective office gets everything they want every time they want it, and if you expect that, you're a fool. Because it's never going to happen. You get you try to get as much as you can when you can by making compromises. Give a little, get a little, come up with something you can live with, come up with something the other side can live with, something that also benefits everyone and, and does what you're after to do. And I was, I, I will say, I'll, I'll say it for myself, I was pretty good at compromising. I was pretty good at that. I didn't, I didn't dig in a foxhole, get down in the hole and say, I'm not moving, I'm not going anywhere, you have gotta come to me. It doesn't work like that. So I was fortunate there. Now the, the Kaiser's web is interesting because when the readers are gonna pick this up and read it, they're gonna go, Wow, this is like right now. I wrote it two years ago. The entire novel was written in 2019. It was turned in in January of two thousand and twenty, so mm-hmm. it was written a long time ago, but it is almost as if I wrote it last week with the issues that are in there
1: what what were you thinking i mean at the time you you, you wrote it obviously there was there was this era of trump there was some, a lot of nationalism it wasn't, it didn't peak like it did no. recently at storming on the capitol but uh it must have been enough that you were seeing out there to think this is a theme worth exploring.
0: It is. And, and it's particularly happening in Europe. And this book takes place in Europe. This is not an American novel. It's It takes place in Germany. And the rise of nationalism across Europe is happening as we speak. And it's growing every day. There's no, there's no question about it. And it's becoming more and more of an issue across the European continent. Here, it's rising as well. And it blew over, you know, in, in what happened you know, recently, uh, it finally reached a boiling point here. So I wanted to explore the nationalistic rise in Europe in a way that was interesting and entertaining to the reader. And I wanted to deal with something from World War II, because I've never dealt with Cotton Malone in World War II much, just a little bit, uh, but not, not like this book deals with it. I came across something in the research about three years ago when I was researching something else. And that's what led to the Kaiser's Web when I found this. And I went like, wow, I never knew that. I had no idea that existed. Um, and so the reader is going to be, I hope, surprised at what they find out that's in, that, that 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 I explore in the novel, because it's true and it's happening not only in Europe, but now here as well.
1: All right. So the, the Kaiser's Web, Steve, it's, um, you know, I've got an advanced uh, copy here is looking at. There's a swastika on the front. There's a... These colors that uh, harken back to you know World War II Germany. You take us in this book uh, in a number of places around the world. You start in Germany, you take us to Chile, South Africa, uh, Switzerland. Um, when you do that, when you write a book, um, obviously in the time of COVID, you're not traveling to all these places, but uh, you do a lot of research, I suppose, to find out about what's going on in those different parts of the country at that point in time.
0: Sure, I did. I did that there, and and I've been to Germany. I don't know a dozen times, and, and the book takes place largely there. But you're right; it goes to Chile and South Africa, which are two places I've been wanting to send cotton for a long, long time. I did not get to go to either one. They're on my list to go to. You know, down the road, definitely going to visit those. But I did want to send cotton there. Switzerland, and I had been there before, so that was easy to to uh, to work into it. I, I I try to put cotton in new places in every novel and new adventures dealing with those new places, and so Chile offered something very interesting that I had read a little bit about, and I think the reader will be a little bit familiar about the German connection to southern Chile and Argentina, but I never quite realized the extent of it. And the reader needs to understand this is not a book about Hitler surviving the war or anything like that, just the opposite of that, in fact. Uh, It doesn't deal with that at all, but it does deal with something interesting that happened on April 30th, 1945, in the Führer bunker, we have no idea what happened in that in that bunker that day and that night. To this day, we have no idea what happened there, and that that opens up some interesting possibilities for thriller writers.
1: Absolutely, and uh, you've gotten some great praise for Publishers Weekly ta- calls it another tantalizing historical "what if" uh, book list. Says Barry keeps finding enticing alternate history mysteries for Malone to solve. Uh, Kirkus Reviews, ominously up to date, which we just talked about. Uh, this might be a good time, Steve, uh, to sort of pull our readers in. Uh, I like to I like to do this read as part of the brand of the podcast where we have uh, the, the authors read some of their work. And I like to, to kind of pull from the beginning because you think a lot about the beginning. We've got a prologue here. And if you would, for the listeners, just set up because uh, you're going to start about halfway through the prologue and go to the end of it. Uh, Tell us about the uh, person who's interviewing this uh, woman that we don't know why she's been arrested, uh, who he is, how he relates to Cotton Malone, and uh, just sort of set the scene here.
0: Well, uh, the prologue of the novel deals with Danny Daniels, who was president of the United States in a lot of my novels, but he went out of office about three novels ago, and now he's the junior senator from Tennessee. He went and got elected to the Senate. And Danny has been called in to help out his friend, the chancellor of Germany. She has a problem. She can't trust her own people. She's asked him to step in and help her out. He's agreed. He's gone down to Garmisch, uh, Partikirchen, which is down on the Austrian-German border. A woman has been arrested there. He needs to interview her and find out some information uh, to learn some things that they need to know. And where this starts right now is when they're they're having that 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 discussion between the two of them in the in the the jail interrogation room. This woman had appeared yesterday in Garmisch for a rendezvous that had been arranged a few days earlier through a series of emails to the chancellor's office from a man named Gerhard Schub. The idea had been to facilitate a transfer of documents from Schub with Cress as the messenger, which happened. Hence the envelope. Then Kress had been taken into custody. Why? Good question. One that his old friend, the Chancellor, had not fully answered. But who was he to argue with methodology? He was just glad to be in the mix. Who is Gerhard Schub? he asked. She smiled, and the expression accented a bruise on the right side of her face. The stain marred what were otherwise striking features. Her skin was a milky white, and the features in her mouth and nose cast her attractive in a stark kind of way though her blue eyes were misty and distant. He is a man trying to help, she said. Not an answer. I'll ask again, who is Gerhard Shu? A man who knows a great deal, she motioned to the envelope, and he is sharing some of what he knows. Why doesn't he come forward himself? He does not want to be found, not even for Oma, she paused. Or ex-presidents? He send me, she stared at him hard. You don't understand any of this, do you? Through the insult, he caught the unspoken message. There is more here than you know. There are people and things from the past that still have meaning today, she said. Great meaning, in fact. As German Chancellor will find out if she pursues this matter, tell Oma to be diligent. Toward what? Victory. An odd answer, but he let it pass. He lifted the envelope. Inside here is a sheet with numbers on it. They look like GPS coordinates. Are they? She nodded. It is a place I am told you need to visit. Why? She shrugged. How would I know? I just messenger. You didn't bother to mention any of this yesterday. Never got chance before arrested and hit in the face, which explained the bruise. I read the other papers in the envelope. He said they talk of things that have been over for a long time. World War Two. Hitler, Nazis. She laughed, short and shallow. Amazing how history can have meaning. Pay attention, ex-president. You might learn things. He could see she was going to be difficult, but he specialized in difficult. Is Gerhard Schub my instructor? Herr Schub is only trying to help. To what end? She smiled. To find truth, what else? She reached for the pack of cigarettes. He decided another smoke might loosen her tongue, so he allowed her the privilege. She quickly lit up and two deep drags seemed to relax her. He needed to know more, especially about the origins origins of the documents in the envelope. Her eyes changed first, a forlorn, pensive gaze replaced by sudden fear, then pain, then desperation. The muscles in her face tightened and contorted in a look that signaled agony. Her fingers released their grip on the cigarette. Hands reached for her throat. Her tongue sprang from her mouth and she gagged, trying to suck air. Spittle formed and seeped from her lips. He came to his feet and tried to help. She grabbed his jacket with both hands, her eyes wide with terror. Kaiser. she strangled one last breath. Then her head fell to one side as the muscles in her neck surrendered. Her grip relaxed and she slumped over in the chair. On the waft of the last exhale came a tinge of bitter almond, a smell he recognized, cyanide. He stared at the pack of cigarettes on the table, the butt still burning on the floor. What the hell? And what did she mean by Kaiser?
1: All right, that uh, that <laughs> brings us in. That's a good a good hook to get us going. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of jumpstarts this whole thing, and we go as you quickly. Uh, we're in the bunker. That's an interesting part of the book. But then we're around the world, and uh, Cotton Malone has got his sidekicks. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Cotton. Malone, I know you've probably told this story before, but uh, uh, I was interested in how he was born, how he originated. Uh, uh, You were, I think, uh, sitting uh, in a Danish uh, square, and uh, this guy just came into your imagination.
0: Yeah, i had written three novels at that point, uh, Amber Room, Romerov Prophecy, Third Secret. And I was contemplating a new book to create a series character. And I had actually written 30,000 words of that novel, and I had created this guy called Cotton Malone, but he was completely different than, than what you, you know him today. And I was in uh, Copenhagen sitting in the Café Nordon in Hybro Plods, which is the square, big square there. It was a lovely evening. It was cool. The windows were open. It was just marvelous. And this new version of him popped into my brain that He would be an ex-Justice Department agent, retired, living in Copenhagen, owns an old bookshop, gets himself into trouble all the time. And his bookshop would be right here in Hybro Plods. And right over there, it was a a, uh, Danish porcelain shop with a 16th century brick facade on the building. I said, that will be his bookshop. He will live here. I came back home. I threw the 30,000 words away and I started over and I wrote the Templar legacy. And that's where he came from.
1: Yeah, that's great. Well, let's let's just do a little quick overview of the book without giving any spoilers away. Where, uh, you know, we've got uh, Cotton Malone in his latest adventure. There's a uh, a secret dossier from World War II era S- uh, Soviet spy comes to light, and it contains information uh, which is proven true, it could rewrite history. It can impact Germany's upcoming national elections, and we have a uh, we have in Germany kind of maybe a little bit of what's been going on in the us recently we have this populism going on in the us with uh, president trump uh, we've got uh, parties that are being fractured in uh, in your book oma who is uh, the the one who's in power at the moment has been in power for a long time and she stands for you know sort of the tradition opposition to to the past that is that secret dark past uh, of germany and along comes this fella uh, Uh, give me his name again. He's got a interesting name. The, the evildoer in the book.
0: Um, yeah, this is amazing. You know, you asked that question. You see, I wrote that book two years ago. Since then, I've dealt with two other novels. <laughs> I've actually, completely. I love it. I love it. I stumped, I I have, stumped Steve Barry on I have, I have this problem all the time because, see, I, I really, and I'll be honest with you, I apologize to it because normally I reread the book beforehand and yeah. I did not pull it out today to look at it. But uh, uh, when you create the characters and you move on, you know, there's been two other books since then. For me, anyway, there've been two
1: other books there. But well, uh, well, look, you've got a better excuse than I do. I just read the book about twenty days ago. I should know that. Uh, the guy, open up the that,
0: open up that advanced reader's copy there to about chapter three, or I think that's yeah. where it comes in. Uh,
1: Theodore Pohl.
0: There you go. That's hey. him. That's him. Yeah,
1: that's him. All right. Well, uh, so we got two candidates, Theodore, and we got uh, Omar. And Theodore is bringing... Eisenhower. Yeah, yeah, and he is. Uh, he's bringing a different. Uh, Sort of vibe. He he really does. He wants the nationalism, the populism, but he's speaking kind of out of both sides of his mouth. And uh, mm-hmm. let's talk about that a minute, because I think we're hearing, like, you know, that we, you know, truth does matter, and and he's trying to pull one over, essentially, on the populace, right?
0: Well, populist populists are that way. Populists just say whatever is important, whatever is relevant at that moment in time, and then the next moment in time they'll say something else, and the next moment something else. And it doesn't matter if those contradict one another; that's completely irrelevant. The only thing that's relevant is at that moment he you say that, and that's a, that's what a populist is. They have they have very they have no belief system. They have nothing that they actually hold dear or precious other than garnering the attention and the the support of people that they're pandering to and poll is that way he's playing off of people's fear you know you, you there's a great line from the American president which is a, a great movie in which uh you know the uh, Michael Douglas says you know that all his opponent wants to do is to tell you w- what to be afraid of and who to blame And that's really where where Pohl is. He wants to tell the German people what to be afraid of and who to blame. He doesn't offer any real solutions to the problem. He just keeps saying those things over and over again. And we see this a lot today in American politics, where we're saying these things over and over and over again, and no one's really offering any real solution, and nor are they in a position to compromise to actually fashion some type of solution. And Marie Eisenhuth represents the, the voice of reason, and they're locked in this very tight race. And this secret from World War II could actually change how that race goes.
1: Yeah, and just like politicians today, they think they found out something about the other, and they want to uh, take advantage of that, which sends both sides looking for the secret to expose the other. And then it starts exposing things that could impact each other. And you asked asked some questions here. Uh, Did Adolf Hitler and Eva Braun die in the bunker? Did Martin Bormann, Hitler's close confidant, manage to escape? And even more important, where did the billions in Nazi wealth disappear to in the waning days of World War II? And the answers to those questions will determine who becomes the next chancellor of Germany.
0: Yeah, it comes down. It's really interesting because what I came across was that in late 1944, In uh, Germany, Bormann called a meeting of German industrialists, and they all got they all met in Strasbourg, and they came together. and He basically told them that we're going to lose the war. War's over. We're not. We're not going to win this war. This war, we're dead. Just a matter of when it's going to happen. We got to get everything out of here. We cannot have what happened to us. That what happened in World War One. When Germany was decimated, all of its wealth and assets and everything was taken away. And they actually engaged in a systematic purge of wealth and patents and informate, all kinds of things that was engaged in through active programs. And I never knew all of this. This is very fascinating. And this book explores all that. And you talked about secrets of each other. This book also deals with secrets. Pole has a secret that he doesn't even know exists. Eisenhuth has a secret that doesn't know. They're both on a collision course for this revelation. And there's like a double whammy for the reader at the end.
1: Yeah, there were some twists and turns, a little roller coaster, which is the you know hallmark of a good thriller. Um, and all through it, you've got Cotton Malone, who on page 19, I just like this little description here. It says, uh, She'd known a lot of men, a few who became quite close, but no one compared to Harold, Earl, or Cotton Malone. He was tall and full through the chest, his wavy hair cut, neat, and trim, seemed to always carry the burnished tint of aged stone. He was a forthright individual with strong tastes and even stronger convictions, but a crease of amusement liked to linger on his lips, which suggested a devilish side, one she knew to be exciting. So uh any uh, autobiographical uh, stuff in there steve yeah.
0: not 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 on this description <laughs> no uh no i uh but but cotton is basically my personality he definitely yeah. is and and cassiopeia is my wife elizabeth's personality so and there's actually when occasionally when they're kind of arguing with one another or they're at odds with one another there's actual words that we have said between one another in there that only her and i would recognize Uh, and, but from a description standpoint, no, I, I, if you'll notice, I don't give you a lot of description of Cotton. I let you kind of envision it. His name though is interesting. Harold Earl Cotton Malone. My father's name is Harold Earl Sam Berry. Everyone calls him Sam. No one knows why, not even him. He doesn't even know why they call him Sam. And so I've transferred that over now with cotton, we know why cotton is called cotton. that was explained in the book the lost order his name we, we I dealt with how in that in that novel how he got his name
1: yeah well that's that's interesting uh just a couple of writing life questions before we jump over to patreon and go deeper here. We'd like to do this on the podcast uh you've um you, you talked already about uh, how you uh, grad you know your success overnight success in ten to twelve years but Uh, Throughout your writing, uh, you really studied the craft. You went, you took classes, you worked on your craft. Um, And this is a question I sometimes ask authors, and that is, you know, Steve, what would you tell your younger writing life person, something of value that uh, had you known it, uh, it might not have been 12 years, it might have been, you know, six, five, four, three, two, one.
0: No, it wouldn't, it would have taken that long, no matter what you, you, there, no one in the world is, is, is born a writer, doesn't exist. You are born, though, with the little voice in your head that tells you to write, that you are born with, that little voice that every day kind of nags at you and says, you need to sit down and write today. Now, it doesn't say write a bestseller, spend you know do all of that. It says just sit down and write. I had that little voice in my head for a long time, and I didn't listen to it till I was 35 years old. So I would tell younger writers who have the little voice in their head, follow it, listen to it. But you've got to teach yourself the craft of writing. No one in the world can teach you how to write. It's impossible. But there are people that can teach you how to teach yourself how to write. And I was fortunate that I found those people and I was able to learn how to teach myself.
1: You've also been involved uh, in history. Uh, You've worked a lot of history into your novels, uh, your your thriller. You're also the founding member of the International Thriller Writers. Uh, Talk about that. So, So that's an organization. It's a large organization now. How did that come together, Steve?
0: Well, it was started in 2004 by Gail Lenz and David Morrell, two great thriller writers. They, they're the founders of ITW. And then there was a core of us, about 50 uh, or so, who were founding members. And I came along in 2005. And I served as co president for three years. I was uh, vice president of publications for a long time, almost 10, 12 years. Um, It's the it's the it's the Thriller Writers Guild. Right now, it's probably around six thousand thriller writers from around the world, Um, and they come together every year at something called Thriller Fest, which is the gathering of the thriller writers. It's a wonderful organization. I was it was great to be a part of it, and um, I, I, I it was just it's it's it was it was something we needed. The thriller writers never had their own place to go. And I've enjoyed being a part of it.
1: That's great. Would you like to give a little shout out for uh, the foundation you've created to fund historic preservation and conservation efforts? I found that to be very interesting. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that.
0: That's History Matters. uh, Elizabeth and I created that in 2009. And we go around and help communities raise money for historic preservation. I mean, we've done buildings, cemeteries, posters, books, uh, rare book rooms, Uh, you name it, we've raised money to help preserve it. We've raised a little over $2 million uh, for about 80 different projects around the country. And uh, we've enjoyed it. We haven't done anything in 2020 or 2021. We won't be doing anything in these years, but we hope to get back in the saddle again in 2022. If anyone's interested in that, they can go to my website, steveberry.org and look under History Matters and they can learn all about it.
1: That's great. Well, uh, <clears throat> listeners, we've been uh, talking to Steve Berry. He's the uh, best selling author of books that have sold 25 million copies now. And uh, his latest, uh, The Kaiser's Web, is out. You can get it uh, today. Uh, you better hurry because people are buying it every 30 seconds. Uh, but uh, now we're going to jump over to uh, Patreon. We're going to talk more about his writing life. Uh, uh, this is a way you can. Uh, Kind of do a little deeper dive with us, uh, support the podcast. It's uh, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. We're going to find out the answer to uh, how a lawyer sells uh, 25 million copies of uh, books. Uh, Steve, hey, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on.
0: If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land.
1: And if you're inclined to help us, help authors, give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You
0: can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening.
1: We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to Queen City